0: Hello, friends. So glad you joined in together today for our online liturgy. And as Sam has already mentioned, the high point of this liturgy is going to be the meal of communion that I'll invite us to receive together after we come to God's Word. And our topic today, it leads beautifully into this Eucharistic meal. Because today, I'd like us to look at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we declare this reality every time we express together the Apostles' Creed. When we declare that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and that from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. So realize this, the coming judgment that's not a secondary element. That that is a part of our creed. It's a central part of our belief in this faith. And you know, one of the benefits of going through a book of scripture like we are with Romans, is that it forces us to look at passages or topics that we might not feel like looking at if we only did topical sermons. Because who today woke up thinking, I so hope we look at the coming judgment by Christ. But our text today leads us there. So turn with me, if you have your Bible app or Bible with you, to Romans chapter 14, and let's hear again what the Apostle Paul writes there. We'll pick it up in verse 10. And as we do, friends, remember, this is a word of God. And Paul writes in verse 10, Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, and here he quotes from Isaiah 45, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Okay, now, as we've seen over the past two weeks, The context for Paul's teaching here is that the people in the Church of Rome, they were passing judgment on each other. They were despising each other over non-essential, really secondary matters in following Christ. So Paul's main point here in these verses is don't pass judgment on others, don't despise others over secondary matters of the faith because each of us will one day be judged by Christ. So that's really his main point here. But I want us to move from these verses and really want us to focus in today on what he's saying about the judgment seat of God, the judgment seat of Christ. Now, Paul says something very similar to this in his second letter to the church in Corinth. Listen to what he writes. This is 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay, now, I know you were going to ask, so I'll just note the original Greek term in both Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians 5 that we translate as judgment seat, that originally was a Greek word, bima. And so we ask... What's a bima? Well, in biblical times, the judgment seat or the bima, it was really kind of a a raised place that you mounted by steps. It was something of a formal platform that was the official seat of a governor or judge. So the cool thing is that even today, you can go to the ancient town of Corinth in Greece. You can just kind of walk up the Central City Boulevard or Cardo into the middle of town, just as the Apostle Paul walked there 2,000 years ago. And there you will find, right in the middle of the town square or forum, the ruins of the Roman government headquarters. And right in front of it, the Bema. Okay, now, this is a picture of the ancient Bema, which still stands in the city of Corinth. And that little white sign there, if you can see it in the middle of it, that sign has a Greek word, bima. That was really the outdoor public judgment seat where the Roman governor would sit to dispense justice, to really try cases. Now, it's really, as you can see in this picture, there, it's lost some of its old glory. But it was right there, Acts 18 tells us, that the apostle Paul stood before the Roman and governor Galileo To be judged shortly before or after, he wrote this letter to the church in Rome. So Paul knew he had experienced an earthly judicial bima. It was fresh in his mind when he wrote Romans. Now, the bima, it also referred, though, to a raised elevation stand or platform at athletic events because the athletes in Greek and Roman games, they were passing before the judge's reviewing stand after the competition before the Bema in order to receive the rewards that they'd earned in the race they just run. And so this athlete's reward ceremony is an aspect of the judgment seat of Christ expressed in scriptures such as, for example, over in 1 Corinthians, where Paul writes this. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize at the bema? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Okay, so all of that is the ancient imagery that Paul is drawing upon as he explains to us about the judgment seat, about the bema of Christ. Okay, so with that understanding, let's look at and be reminded of Paul and scripture's teaching on the coming judgment together. And really as we do this, there are really five questions about the judgment to come that I want us to reflect on together today. And we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture. I'll let you know ahead of time, just because I want to make sure you can see exactly where I'm getting the answers to these questions. So let's look at five questions on the coming judgment. The first question is just this. Okay, how many judgments will there be when Jesus returns? Now, we won't go into this in great depth today, but I just wanted to bring it up because you might know that some scholars believe that the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment that's described in the book of Revelation, they believe that those are two different coming judgments. Okay, why? Well, this is a vision that John had of the coming judgment that will take place at Jesus Christ's second coming. According to John, listen, this is Revelation 20 verse 11. And John writes, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them and I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and books were opened then another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged but what by what was written in the books according to what they had done Okay, now, there is so much we could look at in this passage, but I just kind of mainly want us to see this. Some believe that first, there will be this great white throne judgment at which those who have believed in Christ are led into God's eternal kingdom, and those who have not believed in Christ will be led into hell, which, whatever it actually looks like, is just eternal separation from God because scripture is clear that our eternal destiny is based on how we respond to Jesus Christ. But then some scholars would say, either before or after that great white throne judgment, they believe there will be the judgment seat of Christ, at which believers will be rewarded for what they've done during this lifetime. Okay, now that's one view, and actually, That's a fairly recent view, primarily from just the past 200 years or so. But rather, from most of Christian history, though, the understanding has been that there will be one judgment at which believers and unbelievers are separated and sent to their eternal destinies. But also at that judgment, believers will receive their eternal rewards. Okay, so whichever of those views you hold or whatever you think the timing around those judgments will be, the main point is just that both those realities will take place when Christ returns. Believers and unbelievers will be separated into their eternal destinies based on how they responded to Jesus Christ. And believers will be judged and rewarded according to their works. Okay, now that I think immediately prompts a second question for us. Okay, so followers of Christ will be judged and rewarded according to their works? And the answer very briefly is yes. That is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying, both in Romans 14 and in 2 Corinthians 5. Because in Second Corinthians 5, Paul has been talking, first in chapter 4, about the struggles involved in Christian ministry, which he likens, interestingly, to an ongoing death, which is one way to describe ministry. But then in chapter 5, Paul expresses his joy at the knowledge that death is followed by eternal life. Okay, so hear this again. This is verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 5. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay, so the answer, therefore, is yes. Yes. Followers of Christ will be judged according to our works, as will everybody else. And understand, this is a repeated teaching in scripture. Just listen to two other passages on this, words from Jesus himself. This is from Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. Jesus said, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, this is the second coming, And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Okay, then let's flip back over to Revelation. And here again, this is in Revelation 22 and verse 12. Jesus said, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And notice, there are plenty of other texts teaching this very same thing. Okay, so there are then some other questions that follow on the heels of those passages, right? So I think a third question then, it has to do with the possibility of our condemnation in those judgments. Okay, here's the question. So does this mean then that Christians might be condemned in the judgment to come? Okay, and Here, we have an opportunity to really employ just a a vital principle in interpreting scripture. And the principle is just this. Interpret unclear Bible verses, passages or teaching, based on clear verses, passages and teaching. For example, as we read those passages, we turn then back to Romans and hear these words. This is from Romans chapter eight. In Romans eight, verse one, Profound words from the Apostle Paul as he says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so just on the basis of that one verse alone, and of course there are myriad others just like that, we can therefore conclude that while believers will be judged after death, we will not be condemned. We will not be consigned to hell. In fact, Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John, this is John chapter 6 and verse 4, 40, rather. Jesus said, Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. I mean, that is a clear statement on the basis of the basis of our justification at the end for all who look to Christ in faith. Okay. So I think a fourth question then is this. Okay, if salvation is by grace alone, if it's apart from works, then how can believers be rewarded in eternity for our works? How does that work? And first, we again have to observe and recognize that the New Testament, it definitely states that we will be rewarded for our good works. Now, when scripture says that men and women are unable to please God by their works, it is speaking there of those who have not turned to Christ, of unregenerate sinners, who are trying to be justified before God by their works. And that can't be done. But that doesn't mean that believers that regenerate followers of Jesus cannot please God, cannot do genuinely good works by means of active faith in Christ. Okay, so while the unsaved person can't please God, the saved person, by faith in Christ and through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, can do just that. Even though our works in this life are never perfect. For example, right after assuring us that salvation is not by works in Ephesians chapter two, Paul says this, this is from Ephesians chapter two and verse 10 and we read this. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So really remarkably, The Bible insists that we will be rewarded for good works that we do in this life. Even though we know they're only a result of God's own work in our lives. So really a clear example of this principle, it's found in the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus says this in that familiar passage, this is Matthew 6, verse 19. Just listen as I read this. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. In other words, the saying, you can't take it with you, simply isn't true when it comes to followers of Christ. Because by God's grace, we can send such treasures ahead of ourselves in the form of good works for the life to come. Okay, so a fifth question then is simply this. How can this be? <laughs> really, how can we get rewards for what is really God's work of grace in us? And the answer is because of God's grace in Christ. It is in Christ that our works are received by God with favor and then rewarded by his grace. I think the biggest problem for most of us as we hear all this is that it can sound like a contradiction Of salvation by grace through faith because we read for example back in Ephesians 2 those familiar those profound words of declaration in Ephesians 2 and verse 8 it says for by grace you've been saved through faith and this isn't your own doing it's a gift of God it's not a result of works so that no one may boast So we affirm our salvation, it's not of works. Meaning, works don't earn our salvation. Our works don't somehow put God in our debt so that he needs to repay us for the wages in that way. I mean, that would just contradict grace. And as we read back in Romans, again, one of the great verses of Romans, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of the sin of death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God offers eternal salvation just as a free gift to be received by faith, and it's not earned one bit by works. Okay. How then can I say that the judgment of believers will not only be the, really the public declaration of our rewards in God's kingdom according to our deeds, but that it will also be the public declaration our salvation, our entering into God's kingdom according to our deeds. How do we say that? And the answer, in a few sentences, is that our deeds will be really the public evidence brought forth in Christ's courtroom to demonstrate that our faith is real. And our deeds will be the public evidence brought forth to demonstrate the varying measures of our obedience of faith. To put it another way, salvation is by faith. And even our rewards are by faith. But the evidence of invisible faith as we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, will be a transformed life. So be clear in this, our deeds, they're not the basis of our salvation, but they are the evidence of our salvation. They're not the foundation, but they are the demonstration. Because our deeds, our good works, are the fruit of our faith in and union with Christ. Let me just give two examples of this so we just have more clarity on it. Okay, first for one, just consider the thief on the cross who was crucified beside Jesus. And and Luke 23 tells us that he called out to Jesus in faith while they were both hanging on the cross. And Jesus said to him that that very day he would enter paradise. So let's ask the question, what will judgment be like for him when God opens the books of life and his works are weighed in the presence of God? We could say that 99.9% of his life will be sin. It's really only the final hours of his life that will display the fruit of faith. I mean, he had no time to do good works. But even so, at the judgment, and maybe we'll watch it happen. God will open the book of eternal life and will show the name and declare the name of that thief on the cross because his salvation will be secured through the blood of Christ. And then God will open the book of his life, of that thief's life, and he'll use the record of his life of sin to really... Glorify Christ's supreme sacrifice giving his life and then God will use the last page of his life to show the change that was wrought in that thief's attitudes and words and just that last page of his life truly his last hours on the cross those will be the public confirmation and declaration of that thief's faith and union with Christ. And what grace. Therefore, friends, hear hear me on this. When we say that the record of the good works of our life will be a public confirmation of our faith and of our union with Christ, I do not mean that the record will contain more good works than bad works. May or may not be so, that's not what I'm saying. It may or may not be the case. Rather, I mean that there will be recorded there in the book of our life, the kind of change that shows the reality of faith, the reality of regeneration, and the reality of union with Christ. There will be enough evidences of grace to verify the born-again reality of those whose names are written in the book of life. So no one is saved on the basis of their works, but everyone who is saved does new works, not perfectly by any means, but really with a humble longing for more holiness, more Christ-likeness. Now, I just wanna make so, so sure that we're hearing this clearly, so let me just share a second excellent example of this and it's found really in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews because there God there presents in Hebrews 11 he presents and lists some of the great heroes of faith from the Old Testament now as you read that chapter you might notice that none of their blemishes and sins that were really quite obvious and really explained quite clearly in the Old Testament including murder and adultery, drunkenness, deceitfulness, defiance of God, mistrust of God. None of those, none of even of their deepest sins are even mentioned in Hebrews 11. And we wonder why not? Because between the Old Testament record and this New Testament recounting of their lives is the shed blood of Jesus which washes away all our sins and leaves only that which is pleasing to God. And God, our father, by his grace will therefore reward them regardless of how they fell or stumbled during their life, but he will reward them in love. You know, truly none of this makes sense to us until we remember that God is love. It is just in his very nature to give lavishly, abundantly, the way a father does to a child. He gives us the strength to act. He guides us with his very hand, and he puts his spirit within us to give us new motivations, new empowering. And when all that is said and done, everything that he has empowered us to do he will shout with joy, well done, my child. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Oh, can you imagine? Now, friends, all this has been prompted me to reflect again this week. Okay, do I, do we live in light of this coming judgment? To put it another way, does the way I live my life only make sense if there's a coming judgment and eternity to come? Because that should be the case if I'm following and pursuing Christ. I mean, the choices, the priorities, the investments of my life, they truly should only make sense if there is a life to come. And the other hand, as one writer put it, The modern person is betting their eternal destiny that there is no final judgment. And so the choices they make therefore reflect that belief. So what do our lives declare? You know, John Climacus, he was a 7th century monk who wrote this. You cannot pass a day devoutly unless you think of it as your last. The person who lives daily with the thought of death is to be admired. And the person who gives himself to it by the hour is surely a saint. Because a person who has heard themselves sentenced to death will not really worry about the way theaters are run. How about for us, friends? There is a coming judgment, and in it, our only hope is Jesus Christ. So how fitting then, as we hear these words of what is to come, that we remember about what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, when he reminded us that as often as we eat this bread, and as often as we drink this cup, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes. So we, with men and women of faith across the nations, join in again and we break this bread and we come to this cup and we pray to our Father, O Father, feed us spiritually with this meal. So I would invite you, wherever you are, to take the bread that is before you and hear these words of hope and encouragement. The body of Christ broken for you. Take and receive. And then I encourage you to take the cup that's before you there. And as you take it and drink it, again, remember, the blood of Christ poured out for you. Let's drink together. You praise me, friends. Oh, our gracious Father, we thank you for your provision of life, of hope, of grace through Christ. And Father, I would pray for my friends as we reflect on what your word says through Paul, through Jesus, through all of Scripture. I pray we would walk with a confidence that Christ alone is our hope. And we would walk with an expectancy living this life. Based on the reality, there's an eternity to come. Guide us to that end. Give us hope of that life to come, I pray, Father. And I pray in the way we walk as a community to reflect your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Great to be joined with you again today, friends. And I encourage you as we continue in the season of Lent uh, to go to our website to take advantage of the Lenten resources that are there, even the daily readings you can read or listen to as our staff reads from scripture uh, each day in the season of Lent. And then I do hope you can join in next weekend as we dive again in the incredible letter to the church in Rome. But as you walk into this week and as you wait for Christ's return, now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he lift his countenance on you this week and give you his incredible peace